reading from Luke 19, 35 to 42. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have provided just as you provided for your son. You've provided for us. You've provided the means for us to stay connected when we couldn't be together in person. When we can be together in person, you've provided places for us to do that. You've provided us with fellowship. You've provided us with the means to take your supper. And now you're going to provide provide us with teaching from your word. Lord, we ask that you forgive us and remind us when we forget how you have provided. We ask that you continue to make us more salt, more light to this world, so that the world can also know how you have provided. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, Mike and Christine. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. How are you? Good. It's good to see you. Excited to be here? Great. Yeah. No, it's good to see all of you. Thanks so much uh, for being here. Thank you so much also for um, getting the message, coming inside, doing the registration, going through all of the protocols. If you're joining us online, um, we are inside today because it's raining outside or it's supposed to rain outside. And... Um, Jamie, need me to back up? Great. Awesome. And uh, so thank you for going through all of that. It is a joy. And honestly, it's a joy for me to be able to be in here, to have screens with the lyrics on them so I can look up and I'm not staring at my phone when I'm singing. And I can hear all of your voices because there's walls around us that contain our voices. And so um, it really is a blessing Uh, to be together this morning. If you are joining us online right now, welcome. We're so glad that you're joined in. We are having a bit of technical difficulties today, so you're not seeing any lower third uh, lyrics and scriptures. Sorry about that. Uh, We'll get that put together uh, by the time or next time we are uh, inside together. Um, But so good. And if you're new with us, my name is Alan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Hill Church. All right, so if you guys have a Bible, go ahead, open that up to the book of Isaiah. Book of Isaiah, it's in the middle, really middle-ish of your Bible in the Old Testament. Big book, so you should find it. You have a few minutes before we read it. Um, We're going to be in chapter 53 together uh, today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and do that. If it's on your phone, that is completely fine. And if you're joining us here today, we'll also have it on the screens 
here as well. All right, so here's the deal. Studies show uh, in our country that about 90% of people uh, believe in some sort of God, some sort of deity, some sort of higher power. All right? Now, not all 90% of those believe in a specific God or defined God. Not all 90% believe in the Christian God or what the Bible has to say. I'm assuming that most people here in the room today or joining us online probably believe in God as defined uh, by the scriptures, by the Bible. But I also know that there are some of you here today um, or joining us online where you're questioning if there is a God at all or, or you're questioning if We should trust what the Bible says about God. And you might have some lingering questions in your mind and in your heart that you're wrestling with. I actually think for a lot of us, we have lingering questions in our minds and in our hearts that we really even haven't admitted to ourselves that we have those questions about God and dealing with the doubts in our mind. Uh, One of the things that we're seeing in our country demographically is that younger generations, really starting with Gen X and definitely through millennials and Gen Z and all of that, um, younger generations who grew up in the church are increasingly walking away from the church, going through a process that actually statisticians and others have started to call deconversion. Um, A number of younger people are beginning. What's happening is they're beginning to deconstruct the faith that they were taught as kids. They're giving themselves permission to be honest about the questions that they actually have. And they're more and more comfortable admitting where they're what they really believe or what they don't believe. And so as I've read about this and talked to folks who've kind of gone through a deconversion or even talked to uh, unbelievers, here's one of the things that I hear often from people is this, that the Christian God, the evangelical God, to get even more specific, is a God, this is what people are saying, who demands that we love him. And if we do not love him, he will punish us for all of eternity. And so here's, here's what I hear, okay? This is what I hear. If I'm honest, that this God seems like the most insecure bully in the whole universe. That he demands our love. And if we will not give it to him with no questions asked, then he will use his power against us. And and I hear people say, I don't want to devote my entire life trying to please this insecure bully and fearing that I'm not doing anything right. and, And I'm under this constant threat of being punished by God. So I don't want to devote my life to that. Now, some of you are thinking, I resonate with that. I, if I'm honest, I kind of struggle with that. Others of you might be thinking, that's a completely unfair characterization of the God of the Bible. But I want you to see this. Look at these statistics. 
So in 2017, Pew Research did a study to try to understand how do Americans in the United States, what do they think about God? And specifically to the question, how does God intervene in my life? All right, that's the question they asked. I mean, do, do you believe that God intervenes in your life? I mean, we, we believe in a sovereign God. We believe in a God who's in control of all things. We believe in a God who's all-powerful and can do whatever he wants. We, we believe in a God that is involved in our life. So, so what does that even mean? Like, do you believe that God will mess with your day if you sin? Right, like if, you, you know, if you're struggling with road rage, you know, he's going to send extra red lights into your commute? Or do you believe or wonder if the reason that you're struggling with the illness that you have is because God is punishing you for something? Or, or do you believe that God is watching your every move, just waiting to strike, to make you pay for any sort of sin, right? I honestly believe that, that many of us maybe wouldn't admit that we think that way about God, but there's something in our head that wonders, right? So, so look at these stats. I'm going to put them on the screen if they go up there. But it says this, among, if you can read that, among Christians in our country, so Christians, people who believe in the Christian God, 81% of them believe that God has rewarded them for something in the past. And 47% believe that God has punished them. Right? Not will punish, but has punished them. That they have been punished by God. Now look at the evangelicals. This is, this is amazing to me. Out of every Christian group, evangelicals have the highest number. 96% believe that God has rewarded them. And 56% believe that they have been punished by God. 56% of evangelicals. More than any group. We'll come back to that one. But I want you to see down under there, you see um, the unaffiliated category. So people who would not identify as being religious. Obviously, it's, it's, it's uh, um, to be expected that atheists would have low numbers because they don't believe in the existence of a God. Agnostics, they're not against the idea of God. They just don't have any defined belief in who he is or what he does or anything like that. So they have some slightly higher numbers. But look at the category that says nothing. This is this statistical category that has been called the nuns. It's a growing category of people who are essentially saying when it comes to religion... I don't necessarily reject God, but I have no affiliation at all. This is a statistical category that we are seeing the biggest jump in from younger generations who are deconverting from their faith. And among the nuns, 60% believe God has rewarded them. 41% still believe that God has punished them. And this is interesting because even amongst people who reject any sort of defined belief about God, there is something inside of them that still believes that there is a God and this God is using his power to either reward or punish my behavior. So here's why this is important. 40% of people in our country, no matter what they believe, believe that there is a God who has punished them at some point in their lives. 40%. And as our country becomes more post-Christian, 
We are going to have more and more people who will reject the God of the Bible or deconvert from Christianity because they have a misguided view or they've been given a misguided view on what the Bible says about how God intervenes in their life. They are rejecting this anxiety-inducing idea that there's this God who's always watching you and ready to strike when you mess up. And they should reject that idea because that's not what the Bible says about God. All right, and so this morning I'm excited because we're going to start this series through Easter and called If Jesus is Real. And here's what I want to do. I want to be clear on what the Bible says about Jesus and the role that Jesus as the son of God plays in how God intervenes in our life. Because I believe that one of the problems we have today in Christianity is that there's this disconnect between the saving work of Jesus Christ and then also the everyday ways that God intervenes in our life. And so if you're one of these people who is struggling with your view of God in this way, here's my goal for you today, that you would leave here clear, clear on what the Bible says about how God intervenes in your life and the role that Jesus plays in that. Because if Jesus is real, then today I have some really good news And stats are showing us that so many people in our country have a wrong view of what the Bible says about God. And so today we're going to talk about how God, through Jesus, intervenes in our life in response to our sin. What does God do? Because this is really the heart of the issue. What does God do when I mess up? And so to study that, we're going to be in Isaiah 53, all right, to answer this question. Now, here's why we're going to Isaiah. Isaiah was written 700 plus years before Jesus even walked on the planet. And the reason why I want to go to Isaiah and not the New Testament is because we're going to see how God planned. And it was written down centuries before Jesus even arrived. I want us to see how God planned how he was going to intervene in our lives. All right, so if you have your Bible, open it to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah was a prophet who spoke the words of God to the people of Judah. Um, Now, most of the time, the job of the prophet in the Bible was to warn the people of God, hey, You're not following God, and you need to start following God and start following his ways and and obeying him. And many times in the Old Testament, the prophets did threaten punishment on the people of God for their disobedience. But in the book of Isaiah, not only does Isaiah warn God's people about their sin, hey, you're, you're in bad territory here. Isaiah also prophesies what God is ultimately going to do about this problem of God's creation wandering away from God. 
What is God's plan to rid his people and the earth from sin once and for all? And in our passage this morning, in verse 1, Isaiah 53, verse 1, this plan that God has to ultimately deal with and defeat sin is referred to as the arm of the Lord. Look at that, Isaiah 53, 1. It says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, when you hear the words arm of the Lord, what does that make you think? Well, I know for me, I think of an arm flexing his muscle, right? Here's God flexing his muscle, power, strength, no longer tolerating sin in his creation. You know, maybe this is the point where you go, yeah, there it is. There's that insecure bully ready to strike because his people are not loving him the way that he demands. And as we study the rest of Isaiah 53, we're going to learn what the arm of the Lord is. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. It says this, for he. We already know that the arm of the Lord is a person. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now remember, this is a prophecy. And the scripture is telling God's people that what his plans are to do in the future in response to their sin. So you and I, we have this privilege of being on the other side of this and looking back now and being able to piece together what Isaiah was actually prophesying and what actually happened. And what Isaiah is saying right here in verses 2 and 3 is that the arm of the Lord, God's ultimate display of strength and power, God's plan to rid the world of sin, is a person. And not just any person. But a person who was not majestic, he was not beautiful in appearance, he wasn't famous, he wasn't rich. Rather, he was despised, he was rejected, and he experienced grief and sorrow like we do. You know, as a parent, I have a five and six year old over there, they're listening. When they don't do what I, when they're not doing what I ask them to do, which doesn't happen often, what's easy for me to do is to take my arm and grab their arm and squeeze it firmly in order to communicate what? My authority over them, to communicate my strength over them, to communicate my position. As parent. But I have also learned that what is more effective, what's more loving, what gets through to my kids better is when I get down on one knee, I level with them, 
And I gently grab their arms and look at them face to face. And I talk to them right here. Seeking to understand what's going on with them. Seeking to instruct them in what's going on. See, down here, this is incarnational. As a parent, I'm not a child. But out of love, I get on my child's level and I teach them from here. Because up here, this is where I exert my authority and position. I'm kind of like an overlord who expects full obedience, even if there's no understanding on their part. No questions asked. And as we read the Bible, we do learn that God indeed is our Lord. He is our king. He does have authority over us. He is holy. He does demand obedience. And in response to our disobedience, he will flex his arm. But to our surprise, we learn here in Isaiah that God's arm is incarnation. And in response to our disobedience, He comes down to our level, sending his son, Jesus, to be among us. That hardly sounds like an insecure bully who's just trying to keep this record of all the ways that we've messed up and sending hardships into our lives as punishment. Let's keep reading in Isaiah Verses 4 to 6, it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's go to verse 6 for a second. We just read there. The, the Bible is making a pretty radical statement about you and about me. About every single person on this planet. The, the Bible just says that all of us have gone astray. Each one. We've turned away from God to our own way. That, that we have all sinned against God. Just made that statement about every single one of us. No one excluded. What does that even mean? The Bible gives us a great illustration of this in Luke chapter 15. Familiar story to to many people called the parable of the prodigal son. If you've never read that, I, I encourage you after today, go read Luke 15 and read this story. It's a story to illustrate this. Basically, in the story, we have a son who has a wealthy father. And the son lives with the father and enjoys the wealth and possessions of his father. But the son decides that Life would be better if he could have his father's wealth, but just not the father. And he goes and lives somewhere else, 
to do whatever he wants to do. And so he demands his portion of the inheritance from his father. His father gives it to him and he takes off with his father's stuff, just not the father. This is an example of sin. God is our creator. He is our designer. And he has given us life on this planet. All that we have is his. And he calls upon us to live our lives in a certain way. Because as our creator, he deserves our reverence. But he also knows better how to live than we do. Because he created the place. He designed your heart. He designed your brain. And he designed how your body works and how creation works. And he knows what leads to life and joy. We don't. So when we obey God's word, not only are we giving God glory and honor as our creator, we're also trusting in him that he knows better than we do. Yet, we would rather take the things that God has given us, our very lives, and go live how we want. We want the father's creation. We just don't want the father. That's why Romans 14, 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whenever we are living our lives apart from God and apart from how God told us to live, we are sinning. And just like the prodigal son, whenever we live in sin apart from God, it only brings brokenness and pain into our lives. Because God doesn't give us his word just because he wants to be a bully and gives us a list of arbitrary rules for us to follow. And if we forget one of them, he'll strike. No, God gives us his word because he loves us and he knows the way to life. So back to Isaiah 53, we learn Every one of us has gone astray. All of us have turned away from God to our own way. And there is cost associated with our sin. It is a form of injustice when we sin against God. It's an offense against God. And the scriptures do tell us that God demands a payment. He demands justice for his creation, rejecting him and going their own way. So think about the prodigal son here for a second. The son ran into hardship living on his own. Because that's what happens. And eventually he comes back to the father because he realized there truly wasn't life without the father. And the son assumes in the story that he is now going to have to work for his father to pay off what he had done. And so the question for us is this. If we have all gone astray and God demands justice for our sin, what happens to us now? And Isaiah 53, 5 says that the arm of the Lord, his son, Jesus, who came to our level, what? Verse 5 was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Through his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him, this is verse 6, the iniquity of us all. 
back to the prodigal son. The son knows there's a cost to his sin. He just spent his father's, his portion of the inheritance. It's gone. All right, imagine if you had a million bucks in your retirement account. You had two sons or two daughters or whatever, two kids. And one of them demanded to have half of theirs and go off and do your thing. And you were crazy enough to say, sure. And they went off and spent it all on useless things. And they're now coming back to their house, to your house, because they have nothing. There is a cost associated with this. You have 500,000 less dollars in your account. That's not there anymore. And we read in Luke 15 that the father accepts his son with open arms back into his home with no need to work or pay off this debt that he had now incurred. But there was a cost associated with it. It just was a cost that the father decided to take upon himself. And God is telling his people in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus even walked on this planet, that the way he is going to deal with our sin is he's going to send his son to be with us. He will be the one who will pay the cost associated with our sin. Someone needed to be pierced for our sin. And crushed for our sin. And chastised for our sin. And statistics are telling us that most people believe this about God. That someone has to be punished. Must be me. Statistics also show that we believe. That we are the ones whom God will punish for our sin. Statistics show that evangelicals, more than anyone, believe that we're the ones that God will direct his punishment. But the Bible says that it's actually the arm of the Lord that will take on the punishment for our peace. God sent his son Jesus to be with us, to be one of us, to take upon himself the cost of our sin and to nail it to the cross. And so here's where we need to be really clear about what the Bible says about God and how he responds to sin. He's not a bully with a magnifying glass looking for ants to cook. He's our all-powerful, holy creator who loves us and wants what is best for us. And if we will trust in him, if we will surrender our lives to him, he is willing to take every bit of the debt that we have built up through our sin and look to the cross of Jesus Christ for the payment. And what this means for the Christian, you got to hear this this morning. I don't care if you've been walking with Jesus for 40 years. I know a lot of Christians who've been walking with the Lord for a long time and they still have not gotten this. For the Christian, what this means is that there is no more punishment for you. It has been satisfied on the cross. Paid. Finished. God will not punish his children because the entire cost of your sin, past, present, and future, 
was satisfied by Christ on the cross. There is no more punishment for the Christian. That's how powerful the arm of the Lord is. This is why it confounds me that so many evangelicals believe that God has punished them. It goes against the core of what we believe about the gospel. We have a God who flexes his arm by becoming one of us and taking the cost of our sin upon himself. And I know that there are many people here today watching online that need their image of God in their head to be healed and changed. Because you are not just one mistake away from bringing the wrath of heaven upon your life. God is not ready to strike you with illness or, or hardship or to take things away from you to make you pay for your sin. No, he is a God who comes down and is with you in your hardship and because of the cross is not angry with you. In fact, the cross says that he's utterly pleased and delighted by you. We'll get to that next week. Today is Palm Sunday. The Sunday before Easter where we commemorate the moment where Jesus arrived in Jerusalem days before he would go to the cross to take on the cost of our sin. And Mike and Christine just read for us the account in the Gospel of Luke. And you remember the part, verse 41, Luke 19, it said this, that and when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, to the city, and he saw the city, it says, he wept over it. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he knows the reason he's there. It's to save them. To take their sin upon his shoulders and, and nail it to the cross. It's what the prophets have been saying for centuries is going to happen. And Jesus is weeping because he knows most of them are going to miss it. You have no idea that I'm here. You have no idea that the Messiah is in your midst. The Bible does say that there is a cost to our sin, that there will be judgment for our sin. And for those who trust in Jesus and they trust that he has paid the cost of their sin on their behalf on the cross, they will be found righteous in that judgment and given eternal life. But for those who miss it, who don't believe, who continue to go their own way, they will bear the cost of their own sin in that judgment. And Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, and he weeps over everyone else who misses it. And that's my question for all of us this morning. Do we trust in Jesus, or will we miss him? It's one thing to reject the insecure bully in the sky who is waiting for us to mess up so he can punish us. Right? That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who meets us where we're at, shows us the way of life, and takes upon himself the cost of our sin. And that grace is available to you today if you would place your trust in Jesus. And all that means is to confess that you are a sinner that have gone your own way. All of us are. And that you need what Jesus did upon the cross to pay that cost. 
And that you want to surrender your life to Jesus now. Follow him. Trust in his word over your own. Live the life that God has called us to live. Because you trust that he's good. He knows better. He's leading you to life and joy. And so here's what I would like to do. When you came in today, um, you probably picked up a communion cup. And if you didn't, feel free to walk into the lobby and grab one. Um, If this morning you do trust in Jesus. And you trust in the cross. What I want you to do is I want you to take the next few minutes and I want you to meditate on what Christ has done for you on the cross. Right as you eat that cracker, I want you to meditate on how his body was crushed under the wrath and anger of God. And what that means as you chew that cracker, what that means is there's no punishment for you anymore. It has been satisfied and exhausted on the cross. And as you drink the juice, I want you to meditate on the fact that he was pierced for your transgressions and you are now clean in his sight. And if there's any image that you have of God that's different from that, I want you to pray and ask God, God, help me to think of you as you reveal yourself in the scriptures. But if you're here or you're online and you haven't trusted in Christ, don't worry about communion right now. What I would like for you to do is... I. I want you to take this moment to pray and consider Jesus. And I want you to ask him, I like the people in Jerusalem. I have heard this good news. I have heard about what Jesus has done for me on the cross. I have heard what the arm of the Lord is. Am I missing it? What's stopping me from placing my faith and my trust in Jesus? Because you can pray right now. Place your trust in him. And because of the cross, the cost will have been paid for you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us right now. Nick and Matt are going to come up and play a little music for us. I just want you to take the next few minutes to meditate wherever you're at. Whether that's taking communion and meditating on the cross of Jesus Christ. Or if that's you praying over your own life, thinking through what you believe about Jesus. And then we're going to end our time in some song. Let's pray. Father, I just want to pray right now in the name of your son, Jesus. That if there is anyone who is in this room or watching this on their computer, And what they have believed about you has caused them anxiety. Has caused them to constantly look over their shoulder and live their life racked with guilt and shame because they think that they're always messing up and they're just wondering what you're going to do about it. God, I pray for them right now that by your spirit you would heal what they believe about you. And as they think about the arm of the Lord, they would think about their Savior Jesus coming down to meet them where they're at. 
face to face. Not seeking to condemn. Seeking to save. I pray you would release them right now of that guilt, of that shame, of that anxiety. And they would feel your pleasure. And in that moment, they would understand the power of the cross. I pray for anyone here who doesn't trust in you. Pray by your spirit right now, God, that you would open their eyes and their hearts to your character, to your love and your grace and your mercy. And that it would be the very thing that their hearts have always longed to find as their creator. And I pray, God, right now you would save them, that they would place their trust in you. For everyone else who eats this cracker and drinks this juice, I pray their affection and their love for you and for Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross would explode in this moment. And the response would be worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name.